Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello once again, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here across the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And this is the podcast program that profiles authors with connections to the Appalachian region and how this area influences and impacts their works. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us on the program today as we are profiling another outstanding uh, author with connections to Appalachia and talking about poetry specifically. And our guest today on the program uh, is author Thomas Richardson, and we're talking about his new collection of poems called How to Read. And Thomas joins us. He is a teacher and a writer. He was born in Raleigh, North Carolina, and raised in Columbus, Mississippi. He earned his bachelor's degree from Millsaps College and a master's degree from both Vanderbilt University and the Mississippi University for Women. And he teaches English at the Mississippi School for Math and Science in Columbus, where he resides with his wife, Hillary, son, Emmett, and of course, their pets. So Thomas, welcome to Now Appalachia. So glad to have you on the program today. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me, Elliot. My pleasure. So glad to have you here. And um, I wanted to ask you first um, a little bit about, about poetry and and this th- this whole genre and what got you interested in this genre. Because um, having gotten degrees from different places, lived in different parts of, uh, of sort of Eastern Appalachia, what was it about poetry, about writing poems, and about that genre that, that got you interested uh, as a reader, I'm sure as a teacher, but also as a writer? Oh, that's, that's a great question. I think that I, I really like to play and have for my entire life, uh, like to play word games. And so, you know, I would be on these trips with my parents. Uh, we moved from North Carolina when I was really young to Mississippi, but almost all of our family was in North Carolina. And so we would be on these long road trips, you know, up that way, um, you know, through Atlanta and North up towards Charlotte and uh, East from there and so forth. And all along the way, there would be some sort of word game happening. And I I just loved the, the play of it. Um, And I feel like poetry uh, does a similar thing for me that I'm having to condense all of my thoughts into these, really tight spaces, right, to these little rectangles, essentially, on the page. And uh, what that requires is play. Um, you know, thinking of ways that I would normally say things in conversation, how can I reduce that to, you know, the essence of its meaning um, or into an interesting combination of words that people aren't using so much or, or something like that, inventing uh, phrases and so forth. Um, and I, I would probably trace that back to play as a kid for for the most part but once I got writing in school in an MFA program and so forth I think my draw uh, to poetry is that was at the time what I was reading the most and where I was getting the most um, sort of uh, intellectual satisfaction and exploring the relationship between form and and content right um, and uh, not just play with the words, but also play with the page 
um, and you know what you can do with line breaks or um, you know enjambment and so forth, right? What 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 kinds of uh, power can you find outside of just the the combinations of words? Even though my true love is just the <laughs> patterns of words themselves. Very good, very good. And as we look at your collection of poems, as we look at your collection of poems, how to read. You've got them kind of divided up into four sections, into four four different sections, each section with its own title. And I wanted to ask you about setting those poems up into sections. Were these poems that you had written over a long period of time and then just looked at them and thought, well, I've got enough here to make a collection and I'll put these in part one and these in part two or three? Or did you know from, from the beginning that I'm going to spend you know, two years or however long it might have might be or might have been working on poems to put into a collection. How did you, how did these poems make it into this collection? And then how did you determine what was going to go in part one, part two, part three, and part four? Uh, each one of those uh, options that you listed has something to do with how it played out. But um, I, I would say that I had these little cycles in my head of things I wanted to, to write about, for example, teaching. I knew I wanted to write a lot of teaching poems, but I was also writing a lot of poems about childhood. So, you know, naturally I was seeing this kind this relationship, right, of both sides of the desk, so to speak. Um, and um, then I started thinking about my own education, which is, um, for, for a lot of it was uh, theology-based, uh, biblical studies-based. Um, and so naturally some kind of religious poems appear as well. And when I started thinking about that, I mean, how to read is in some ways literal, right? Because uh, that there are poems about teaching young people uh, how to interpret texts and, and that sort of thing. There are poems about uh, my having to learn to read or, or school poems from, from my youth. Um, but then, you know, later in the collection, and really spread throughout uh, that how to read becomes a, a metaphor, right? For um, looking at the world around us and how our um, understanding of it changes as we get older or experience new things, uh, experience tragedies, experience joys, experience parenthood, so forth. Um, and, and so I think the arc of the collection ends up being you know, uh, moving, I guess it's that classic uh, William Blake innocence to experience move in some ways. Um, you know, you have more childhood poems at the beginning and then fatherhood or thinking about aging and death and so forth later on. Um, so how to read becomes the metaphor for the whole um, experience of taking on new understanding um, with new experience. Very good. I, you know, I love these poems because I, I found all of them in all sections to be really clever, humorous, very poignant in many ways. And and I loved it because you were writing it from the perspective of someone who has roots and connections to Appalachia, who's lived in the South for a long time. Uh, and you're kind of giving the reader some perspective and insight into what it's like living here and to some of the values and mores that kind of guide uh, our our life both uh, in Appalachia and in the South and I was wondering as you as you were writing these poems was it 
just something that kind of came out subconsciously when you were writing that you that these themes emerged or did you realize that or did you know kind of going in I have a feeling this poem's going to deal with family and this poem's going to deal with faith and this poem's going to deal with something else how was that process for you yeah, that's that's a fascinating way to look at it. I, I think probably some of it is subconscious. Um, and, you know, other times I'm like, well, there's this thing that feels uniquely Southern that I want, I want to write about. But, um, you know, I, I think the South has some pretty distinct languages. If we're talking about learning how to read, they're learning languages, too. And like you say, one of them, I think, for a lot of people in the South is um uh, bible or christianity you know even if even if you're not particularly a person of faith it's just everywhere um and so the language with with our i, I cannot separate myself from that language that i've grown up in yet i've lived in the entirety of my life in the south um you know and so that's that's my language uh and and it doesn't have to necessarily be a preachy type of religious language, just the, the language of, uh, of scripture, of, of parables, of, you know, prophetic speeches and so forth. Th those are just kind of there in the, in the ether, you know? And so when, if I'm breathing it in, that's what I'm going to exhale as well. Um, and uh, I think that's true of, of other things, you know, uh, whether it's um, family gatherings with food, Food, you know, food is another uh, potential language, uh, love language, even in the South, right? Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know that. Some of it, I think, is is conscious. Sometimes, like I know, okay, when I'm writing a poem about that mentions a guy wearing a NASCAR hat or something, right? Like I know that that's that's a Southern thing. I'm aware of that when I'm writing it. But I think a lot of times. Um, some of the the patterns that come out um, in my own language, what I think is my own language, is really just um, the, a biblical story that I read as a child or again as an adult, and just hearing those patterns of uh, the, the cadences, you know, of Old and New Testament and so forth. I think those pop out as well, um, not so consciously. Very good. I want to ask you about one poem. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, faith and how that works in your poetry here in just a minute with it, with another one of your poems. But I wanted to ask you uh, about another poem of yours that I really, really liked. It's called Inside and Out. Um, and, and we get one of the things I loved about this poem is it starts with that second person, you, uh, which oftentimes we don't see in poetry. And certainly, you know, we as readers and when we're reading fiction and memoir, we really don't like that you second person because it kind of feels like the author is finger wagging at us to some degree. And in some ways, we don't know who the you is necessarily that the writer is talking about. But but in this case, you started your poem with you and we get a sense that uh, this this person is um, unbuckling or unattaching a belt for what looks like it's going to be discipline. Um, and we kind of uh, move on from that and we see some, some images of of some some fantastical uh, images here that connect back to God in some way sort of looking up towards the heavens and uh, a couple lines that I really liked um, uh, you write in that poem so where will I find the father and why that metaphor when no dad worth the title gets another chance after a Katrina and a middle passage and boxcars and plague and sand creek and sandy hook and there were all those that just those words, just just Sandy Hook and Katrina and plague and all of those things 
really brought back some some really stark images to me. But one of the things I liked about the poem, though, is there is a sense of hope and there is a sense of something bright to come. And despite all of this, and I think that is, for me, a theme that I noticed in a lot of your poems, that, that there's there's a hopefulness to your poem. Uh, that there is um, light that is going to shine again, uh, despite whatever happens in that particular poem. Can you talk a little bit about about that thematically uh, as a theme that I feel like I saw a lot in your work, but also how it kind of relates to Inside and Out? Because I, I really thought it, it stood out really strongly in that poem. Sure. Um, yeah. And thank you for, for what you said about that poem. Uh, I, I I think that I could, I could probably talk about this as being a southern thing too but one of one of the i, I just love juxtaposition and i think uh, being a southerner naturally requires having two conflicting ideas in your head at one time right you know that this sort of in the south for example the, the we always feel like we're being pulled back into some sort some sort of toxic uh thing that we hope we had left behind right uh while you know, just moving forward with all the beauty, the beauty of the South that we want to hold on to. Um, so that kind of thing. But I think religiously, I feel that that way, too, that, you know, there is I don't think anybody biblically or otherwise has ever successfully answered for us um, the the question of theodicy. Right. Um, and, the, and the problem of God's justice, why some people get seem to get left out, <laughs> um, why. Uh, bad things happen to good people and so forth. And yet at the same time, there, there are some things that seem so cosmically beautiful uh, with the world. And so living with that tension, I think is perfect for poetry, right? Because, you know, you're a poet looking on the, the ills of the world, right? I mean, you, you're looking at that, but also you're, you have poets looking at the beautiful flowers or, or the ocean or the sun, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so how do you, how do you say, um, I, I feel in one moment completely like life is not worth the living, but then on the other hand, look at this, whatever that this may be for, for, you know, a speaker of one of these poems. And so in, in inside and out, um, there's a, I think the speaker of the poem is, is taking some sort of imaginative leap. I, I've heard people talk about the, the belt buckle as, um, discipline before, Right. Uh, and in which case you could say that the speaker is trying to get out of whatever I guess discipline is here and letting their mind wander. Uh, the other possibility here is that the speaker is having sex <laughs> um, and their mind is drifting right to these other things. In either situation, the mind is not really on whatever's in front of them. Right. And it's that feeling like I think what inspired this poem was um, I was on the way home from work one day driving in my car and I had one of those moments that everybody has I think uh, where um, you know you just get into this your mind goes too far with like okay so with the origins of the world <laughs> the universe right like how how did that start what was before all of that you know and you kind of get you feel really spiral and so whatever the situation that the speaker is in at the beginning the the leap the leaps that um he takes into all of these places is is to say well look at this amazing thing that happened like the the uh 
the orbiter, right? That was taking pictures of, of, of Saturn and how it was going to, it was taking pictures to the last second until it crashed into the planet. Right. And, um, and the speaker is like, Oh, well, that, that's kind of a beautiful thing. Right. <laughs> how do you, how do you thank that machine? And then at the same time, just a few stanzas later, like a switch has flipped or, you know, the mind has drifted into these darker places and, um, thinking about is the is the father metaphor a good one for a god who who allows essentially these things these atrocities to happen right or um heaven forbid <laughs> you know starts them right whatever whatever it may be however you think about that theologically and so the idea of like holding dark and light together um in in conflict i think is a really rich you know place for exploration for a poet because I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, I don't, I don't think we're all one way or the other, right? Not all optimists or pessimists. We're always trying, straddling that line, um, looking for hope and also knowing that the worst could come at any second. The title of the book we are talking about today is a collection of poems. It is called How to Read, and our guest is author and teacher Thomas Richardson. So Thomas, we'll come back uh, to the poems in just a second. But I wanted to ask you, um, as a reader, too, I, I know you read a lot. Um, maybe maybe this time of year more student work than uh, other work. But uh, who are some poets that you that you really like? Who are some poets that inspire you? Who are some that you kind of turn to when you're thinking about writing poetry or you're needing some inspiration, who are some of your favorites? So um, one of, one of the influences that's probably clear, you mentioned like the humor and the sort of whimsy sometimes in, in some of these uh, speakers sort of mind drifts. Uh, one, one of the, the big influences on me has been Billy Collins who, you know, just has this amazing ability to have a speaker who's maybe just sitting there eating breakfast and, just starts thinking about something, you know, takes this philosophical leap. Uh, so that that's a probably obvious um, influence, one that is less obvious and people don't believe me when I tell them. Um, when I think about uh, rhythm and structure um, is uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, I don't I don't know that it, it comes through in a really direct way, but um, just the idea of sprung rhythm um, and, you know, sometimes letting a few really hard stress beats hit right in a row and then spinning back toward uh, something more iambic or something, you know, that, that kind of interplay between that rigidity and then the sort of flowiness. I, I try to accomplish that in a lot of ways. Plus, I was mentioning before wordplay. I mean, there's a poet, Hopkins, who made stuff up all the time. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of, of lines like in Spring and Fall to a Young Child where he says, the worlds of one wood leaf meal lie like leaf meal. <laughs> I mean, he, he's that's that's such a great word, you know. Um, and you know, he, I, I, I tell my students all the time that one of that the beginning to his poem, The Wind Hover, is you know, rhythmically in my head all the time when I'm writing, even if it doesn't come out on the page, I'm always saying, I want to write like I caught this morning, morning's minion. Um, I want to sound like that. So you'll find like little bursts, I think, of alliteration or sprung rhythm um, and so forth throughout uh, the collection. But there are contemporary uh, writers as well that um, I'm reading. I, I joke a lot of times when people ask me about who my favorite poets are. Well, you know, 
the, the four or five last poets I read, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, folks uh, in the South right now, I'm, I'm a big fan of our poet laureate Katie Pierce's work. Uh, I'm a big fan of um, an Alabama poet, uh, Jacqueline Trimble, who uh, I was so um, lucky to get to study with uh, when I was in the MFA program at the W. Um, you know, people whose whose poetry ha- carries all the weight of some of the biggest names out there and yet is so accessible um, for, I mean, I, I teach high schoolers and, you know, for a lot of them, there's a barrier to poetry because they think it's some sort of like escape room puzzle or something that they have to completely unlock in a certain time period or they're out, you know, um, but um, there are a lot of poets that I really admire, like Katie Pierce and Jacqueline Trimble, who leave a poem open for, for any reader. And, and as Katie Pierce says in her poet laureate work, you know, poetry is for everybody, or it should be anyway. Um, and so I try to remember that, too. I think there are some kind of complicated poems in the collection, but for the most part, um, I try to have them accessible because I would rather somebody come to the book and say, I don't like poetry, but I can get behind these poems, you know, than the other way, right? Come come to the, the book and think, oh my God, I, I don't even know how to get started here. I, don't, I can't find an entry point. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, I've heard Billy Collins say the same thing, who is one of my favorite poets as well, but I've heard him say the same thing that Katie Pierce has said, and that is poetry should be accessible to everybody, no matter your age, your educational background, where you live, where you're from, you should be able to to get into poetry, have it accessible, have it relatable, and have it be something that, that you can connect with. So I wanted to ask you about your collection of poems. There are so many different styles here. There's some haiku that kind of runs through the collection. There's some sonnets that run through the collection. Some of us may be familiar with those from uh, studying Shakespeare and all of his sonnets. Um, and, and then you've got some four-line stanzas um where kind of the second and fourth line become the first and third lines in some ways so of of all of those if you had to write a collection of only one of those types i'm putting you on the spot here (laughs) which one would you choose was would there be one if somebody said all right thomas you can only do a collection with this format is there one of those that you that you like above the others or what would you decide if you had to make that choice Mm, that's so hard i I am a huge fan of the the pantoum form, and that's the one you're talking about with the second and fourth line become the first and third of the next stanza and so forth um, down the road because of what we were talking about before with uh, juxtaposition. Um, when you repeat lines in different positions, they take on new meanings, and you may see that line show up right next to a thing you would have never imagined it to be uh, next to. So I think... Gosh, if I had to do, to do just one fixed form, that might, might be it because there's so much possibility there, uh, so much surprise, even to the writer. You know, to to write one of those poems is really difficult. It's a fun challenge um, because uh, you you might not even on first draft know where this thing's gonna go, uh, so you surprise yourself um, and and. Again, I go back to it's just fun to play with words and see what happens when I look at the same words in a different context. Uh, but but if, if I were to just write strictly free verse in a collection, then the, the sonnet form is really significant because of the turn, right? I want every, I would want 
a collection to at least have, even if it wasn't going to be in line nine or line 13, you know, I would, I would want a moment where something shifts significantly. Um, so gosh, I know I'm trying to have it have all the, <laughs> but yeah, I'll go Pantoom. I'll go Pantoom as the, uh, the one, if I had to pick one. Fair enough. And thanks for letting me put you on the hot on the, on the spot <laughs> yeah. like that. I know that's like asking, you know, who's your favorite child or what's your favorite pet? Of the right. <laughs> so I, I appreciate you letting me put you on the spot. Thomas Richardson's our guest here on Now Appalachia. The title of his new collection of poems is called How to Read. So Thomas, I wanted to go back to, to, to the poems for just a minute. Uh, we were talking earlier about, about faith and religion and, and how that is sort of uh, ingrained in, in Appalachian culture and in the South and how it just kind of bleeds over from, from both of those parts of the country. Um, I think that's really epitomized so well uh, in one of your poems. Um, it's called How to Read a Red Letter Bible. Uh, mm -hmm. To me, that that is a, a poem about faith, about family, and about mourning. And I know you and I were talking before we, uh, talking a little bit before we started our interview today, uh, in that that was a very kind of personal poem to you because it took you back to uh, an experience in your childhood. Can can you talk about that for a minute and how some of those experiences work their ways into the poem? Right. So, um, red, red letter Bible is about, uh, the speaker is, 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 um, mourning the, you know, the, the loss of some, some relatives, it's sort of made up, right? The persona is, is mourning the loss of some, some relative who um, had those, like we were talking about those, uh, those lines that are stored away, right? Like, so that, that the, this, the person says like fly or fry, right? This kind of like religious um, uh, threat essentially, right? Um, and, and the speaker is thinking about, you know, I guess their, their love for that person, but also how they feel inadequate faith-wise you know like they didn't see things exactly how uh the the dead great aunt or whoever the, the the character is did um and and so the this idea of like well, where am i gonna where am i gonna find that you know uh, how how am i gonna get there i'm going to the source text right i'm going to go into the bible and things are just not clicking for me in the same way and there's just that desire to want to be able to feel that way right to be that confident about faith and so forth um and and i think you know again that that interplay between doubt and faith hope and fear all these kinds of things just living on that that precipice there is, is sort of interesting to to go inside a speaker's head who just doesn't know and doesn't feel like they're ever going to get there um yeah. is, a, is a fun headspace to inhabit absolutely and and kind of one of the lines that ties back into exactly what you're saying comes, I think uh, there, there's that section where you write, when my grandmother died, the preacher eulogized her coconut cake. And which <laughs> was so great. Uh, Cause I can remember when my grandmother died uh, in 1993, I can remember people saying, Oh, you know, Elliot, I'm so sorry. And boy, I'm going to really miss Juanita's homemade cinnamon rolls. You know, those were just <laughs> the best things that ever. And, and I know they, I know exactly what they meant, but it was just funny how that took me back. But, but then you write somewhere between Psalm 23 and blessed assurance. And I was thinking about that, that song, I'm familiar with that song. And of course the 23rd Psalm, and there's so much that goes on 
in the spiritual and religious journey from the 23rd Psalm to getting to blessed assurance that uh, hearing you talk about how the, you know, it, it's about thinking about how do we, how do we conquer that? How do we get on that path? Yeah, that, that's a, that is a path that is fraught with all kinds of challenges and, and depending on how you do, it could be a very narrow path as you're trying to get from the 23rd Psalm to blessed assurance. Right. Yeah. That, that's a great point. And so the speaker and all God's people said it. Amen. It's like they are, they are definitely um, looking uh, to to figure out. Well, what's the you know what's the right way to uh, eulogize somebody, or what's the you know what's the right way to talk about like somebody who's lived that life of faith? Like how do how do you do that? And and the speaker is initially irritated. I think right at the at the preacher for talking about this coconut cake rather than um you know maybe some other works right but then it finally clicks i think for for the speaker that actually this this is the most loving thing you could have said about this person because that's how they showed love on their journey from like you say psalm 23 to blessed assurance you know i okay so my doubts still remain but I can make this coconut cake. Right. Um, and so that, that sort of love for my grandmother and how she showed love for other people is a good example, even to a speaker who might have the doubts himself. Right? Very good. Excellent. Very well said. So uh, we're going to let you read in just a minute, Thomas, uh, a poem from your collection, but I wanted to ask you first, before we get to that, uh, if anyone wants to get in contact with you, if they want to follow you uh, on, on social media or reach out to you to talk to you more about your poetry collection or anything else that you're working on, uh, where can they find you? How can they get in contact with you, first of all? And then secondly, where can they get copies of How to Read? Great. Okay. So um, I am on social media, uh, but I am not super active on on the ones that you would expect somebody trying to promote their work would be. For example, I, I'm more active on on Facebook, I suppose, because that, um, you know, uh, family members and so forth are on that one. But um, on Twitter you and Instagram, you can follow me at, at Spouting Thomas. So like Doubting Thomas, but instead I'm spouting out my opinions or whatever, right? Um, at Spouting Thomas. Um, and uh, and you can find me by my name on, on Facebook if you want to reach out that that way, um, you can go to my website, which is thomasbrichardson.com. Thomas B is in boy, richardson.com. And um, the book is available at most major uh, booksellers. I know, Elliot, you're in Oxford. It's at Square Books. Um, it's um, if you are in, um, if you're in a place kind of far away from the Southern independent bookstore route, uh, then I would suggest going online and you can buy it directly from uh, the publisher Friendly City Books through their um, bookshop.org store. Uh, but it's also available on Barnes and Noble online, Amazon and so forth. Very good. All right. So one of the great things about being the host of this program is 
sometimes when you ask someone to read an excerpt from their work, they get they ask you to pick. And Thomas was so nice in asking me to pick which poem I would like him to read from, just so you get a sample of what the poem sounds like and kind of how he writes and, and, and the style. And I think poetry really lends itself very well to this. And so I'm going to choose the poem that we were talking about just a few moments ago, uh, and that is called How to Read a Red Letter Bible. So Thomas, uh, we'll turn the floor over to you and let you uh, read that poem to us and for us. All right. So this is in the section called How to Read a Red Letter Bible. This particular poem is called And All God's People Said Amen. And this is dedicated to my grandmother and, of course, to uh, Elliot's as well, as he talked about uh, the, the pie and so forth, right? And everybody probably has a, a similar connection to someone in their life. So um, here we go. When my grandmother died, the preacher eulogized her coconut cake. Somewhere between Psalm 23 and Blessed Assurance, he gave those packed in the pews at Manly Presbyterian Church a revival in confectioner sugar and full-fat milk. While the Hammond warbled behind him, the Reverend Doctor picked up speed, wiped his brow as he reminded every mourner that the only grace there was was the grace they could taste, the kind that paints a sheen on the lips. And in Etta's kitchen, there was a slice for every widow, orphan, outcast, and addict. Into your hands we commend your sweet servant, Lord. What is love but four sticks of butter, hand-whipped and spread smooth behind an unlatched screen door? That is a poem from the collection called How to Read. The poet has been our guest today here on Now Appalachia. His name is Thomas Richardson. He's not only a poet, he's a teacher and a writer. Uh, lives in Columbus, Mississippi. Graduated from Millsaps College and got master's degrees from Vanderbilt University and his MFA from the Mississippi University for Women, and was born in, born in Raleigh, North Carolina, and has all kinds of connections to Appalachia in the South. Thomas, thank you so much uh, for the excellent and fascinating conversation today. Really enjoyed it. This is a, a tremendous collection of poems that if folks are wanting to get back into poetry or wanting to get into poetry for the first time and they've been afraid of it or for it or about it for a long time, I would highly recommend them read your collection because there's just so many wonderful things going on here. So great to have you on the program today uh, to talk about it. And thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Elliot. We want to take a moment as we finish up uh, this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out and a thank you to the executive producer of our program and of all the programs that you hear here on that you hear here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate all the work that she does making these podcasts possible for you uh, each and every time that we bring them to you. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.